This is Guns and Butter. Really, in early March, that something happened in terms of the narrative being delivered by the news was that the U.S. government told the health officials, uh, CDC and the HHS, to classify all coronavirus deliberations. So the communications about coronavirus were now going to be controlled by the National Security Council. That was a big flag for me because really we were told. Uh, up until that point, not to worry about coronavirus, not to wear masks. Masks would not be effective. It's not a problem. But somehow at the beginning of March, a narrative switch was thrown. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Similarities of 9-11 and the Pandemic. Kevin Ryan is editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies that publishes peer-reviewed research. He is author of Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects. He was site manager for a division of Underwriters Laboratories, and as a manager at UL, he began in 2003 to question the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by Underwriters and the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and UL's work to ensure the fire resistance of the buildings. Ryan lost his position at UL for making his questions public. In today's show, Kevin Ryan enumerates similarities between 9-11 and the pandemic. Today's interview was produced in October of 2020, but not aired at that time due to audio issues. Kevin Ryan, welcome back. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be with you. Kevin, you are a renowned 9-11 whistleblower, researcher, and author on what was the first transformative event of the 21st century, the crimes of September 11th. Now you are researching and writing about the second most transformative event of the 21st century, the coronavirus worldwide pandemic. I found your presentation to the 2020 Film Festival parallels between 9-11 and COVID-19, very intriguing. You began by citing the four steps of the scientific method. What are they, and why are these steps important? Well, the scientific method has uh, four basic steps, and that uh, begins with observation, and then hypothesis, or a question, then experiments, and finally conclusions. And the reason this is important is that um, a lot of people we found with 9-11 and with other things related to official accounts being given by government uh, agencies, a lot of people won't follow through with observation. They're not able to observe things objectively. And that's partly because it seems that they don't want their minds to uh, jump to a, a hypothesis that they can't except psychologically. So the presentation I gave to the Northern California 9-11 Truth Alliance really focused on observations about 9-11 and then applied those observations to the coronavirus situation to see if there's any similarities or what I call parallels. 
Now, observation is the first step in the scientific method, isn't it? That's right. So you're saying publicly we're not even able to get through the first step. That's what it seems. And really, uh, those of us who've looked into the 9-11 crimes over the last uh, now almost 20 years since 9-11 have noticed that um, a lot of people can't go there. They've used that phrase, I can't go there, which means they can't observe things about 9-11 that would contradict their worldview. And in my presentation, I go through 11 such observations about 9-11 that many people simply cannot observe because uh, they can't allow their minds to go there. They can't allow themselves to begin to think in a way that contradicts the official account. Yes, I've taken note of your 11 observations about 9-11. You begin with what you call incessant fear-based media coverage. What have you discovered about that? Well, with regard to 9-11, if you recall, if anybody was alive and, and uh, aware at the time, they were aware that suddenly the news became consumed with the fear of terrorism. And so every news story was uh, reporting uh, information about potential terrorist attacks and leads on potential terrorists. The terms 9-11 and September 11th were just repeated endlessly. And terrorism was just a lead story everywhere throughout the news. This drove an agenda that appeared to be pre-planned, a military agenda for invasion and conquest in several countries. And it also appeared to be focused on driving people's fear. So I, I went into, in the presentation, the color-coded terrorism warning levels that the new Department of Homeland Security had generated and how there were these different risks, severe and high and elevated. And they would remind us in the news every day almost which, which level we were at. It seemed to be uh, just over-the-top fear-mongering, and it was throughout the media. Um, I also mentioned that really after 9-11 and after the anthrax attacks, it appeared that news was really just the repetition of messaging from, from the Pentagon, from the Department of Defense. And it was not uh, critically analyzed in any way. It was just, if you uh, took a look at the news back then, the same story would be repeated over and over again by multiple news outlets around the world, and it would really trace back to the Pentagon. So um, this incessant fear-based media coverage appeared to have an agenda behind it and had to do with the military conquest and the seizure of resources. Uh, the television kept repeating these videos of planes plowing into the World Trade Center. I understand from somebody that they, they played them all day long on September 11th. I believe that's true, yeah. And, you know, so the the, uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center particularly were, you know, very dramatic. Uh, I think we all remember the fireballs and the debris and as the buildings were collapsing, which, by the way, uh, the collapse of the buildings were not uh, really shown much on television after the events of 9-11. Just the initial uh, impact of the planes, as you said, and the fireballs. And uh, in particular, there was a, a third tower that fell on 9-11, the World Trade Center Building 7, that 
most people didn't learn about for some time if they learned about it at all. And uh, the fall of this building was not shown on television at all because, in my opinion, the, the destruction of that building appeared to be exactly as if it was a controlled demolition, even more so than the towers, of course. The second observation about 9-11 is that there was no investigation. Could you talk about that? Yeah, as I pointed out, there was not going to be an investigation into the crimes of 9-11. Just, just amazing to most of us. Uh, the government had no plans to look into how this could have happened, how these alleged hijackers could have avoided being captured beforehand when they were traveling around the country, using their own names, using their own credit cards, uh, how they could have possibly hijacked the planes, given um, all of the precautions that were in place to prevent that, uh, how the planes could not have been intercepted uh, over a period of almost two years, despite the fact that exercises to do that went on regularly before 9-11, and there was never a problem. Um, how the buildings could have been destroyed in such an unprecedented manner that um, had never happened before and has not happened since. So there wasn't going to be an investigation into the 9-11 attacks. People like Vice President Dick Cheney and, and others tried to prevent any investigation. An initial joint congressional inquiry led by the leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, which frankly is, is kind of like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. It was uh, you know, how could these things have happened? How could they have, have evaded intelligence? And we're going to investigate it by putting up the same intelligence agencies in charge of it. But ultimately, it was the victim's family members. You may remember the Jersey girls, four widows uh, from New Jersey, whose husbands were killed in the World Trade Center buildings, who just through a, just a, an incessant approach to the Congress uh, of the United States, they embarrassed the government into starting the 9-11 Commission. And Unfortunately, at the end, uh, almost all their questions went unanswered. But the NIST World Trade Center investigation was also uh, a whitewash. They, they clearly didn't uh, address their own scientific experiments. They contradicted their own scientific experiments. So no real investigation into 9-11 occurred. Now, your, your third observation about 9-11 is that the response kills far more people. What about that? Yeah, I think that a lot of people have have noticed, and they should, that uh, approximately 3,000 people died on 9-11, but far more people died in the war on terrorism, the global war on terrorism that, that ensued after 9-11, where really countless people died in the 9-11 wars, and millions had their lives destroyed through those wars. And, you know, democracy was threatened which obviously is important to people's livelihoods as well as their personal freedoms being attacked after 9-11. So really, the response itself to 9-11 was far worse than the 9-11 attacks themselves. Your fourth observation is false official accounts. Yes, the 9-11 Commission Report is an example. It's false in, in a lot of ways. It ignored a lot of the evidence, and uh, as I wrote in an article on my blog, the 9-11 Commission actually claimed 63 times in its report that it couldn't find evidence for many of the critical aspects of the crimes. 
It then based its own report. The 9-11 Commission was based largely on myth and uh, torture testimony, which is now known to be false. For example, one of the, the primary uh, torture testimonies that was used was from a man named Abu Zubaydah, who um, in 2009, the, the U.S. government admitted, had no connection to al-Qaeda at all. Yet he was the one who allegedly identified Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Shaib. And then those stories kind of evolved into the 9-11 Commission report. But uh, people may remember that those torture testimonies were videotaped, despite not being given to the 9-11 Commission. And the videotapes were actually destroyed before they could be witnessed by people outside of the intelligence agencies. The NIST reports also avoided a lot of the evidence, as I mentioned. They contradicted their own experiments, and ultimately they resorted to using a computer model that they claimed that we are not allowed to see because it might jeopardize public safety. And all of that really leads us to understand that the official accounts are clearly false, and that's an important piece of evidence with regard to the idea that maybe these were inside jobs. I remember that the 9-11 Commission took a lot of testimony from people that was never included in their report. Isn't that right? That's true. A great example is uh, the World Trade Center custodian, William Rodriguez. William was a great hero at first, and uh, having saved so many people from uh, having the key to the to the stairway and allowing people to escape and helping them escape. But William wouldn't stop talking about explosions happening in the lower levels of the building. And when it was clear he wouldn't stop talking about it, his testimony was not included in the report, and he was no longer considered a hero. Now, your fifth observation about 9-11 is that it was preceded by exercises mimicking the events. Could you talk about the exercises? Yeah, well, I talked largely about the air defense exercises, although there were other types of exercises that preceded the events. The air defense exercises were the ones that that caught my attention the most. And uh, later, after 9-11, records were uh, released that show that NORAD had practiced 28 hijack exercise events within just the 20 months before 9-11. In contradicting the idea that, that they weren't looking for hijackings within the United States, six of those NORAD hijacking events actually practiced hijackings located entirely within the United States. Uh, one of them practiced interception of a hijacked airliner that was meant to crash into the United Nations building, uh, which is in New York City and just a few blocks from the World Trade Center. And another one practiced just before 9-11, just a couple of months before 9-11, had a planning document with a picture of Osama bin Laden on the cover. So NORAD said that several exercises were planned for the day of 9-11, but we found out that actually two of them were being conducted on the day of 9-11, one of them called Vigilant Guardian, another called Apollo Guardian. And it's clear from the testimonies released by the 9-11 Commission of people involved in these exercises that they confused and obstructed the national defenses. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. 
Today's show, Similarities of 9-11 and the Pandemic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, your sixth observation about the events of 9-11 is the insider trading, which obviously shows foreknowledge of the events. What do we know about the insider trading? Well, we know that there were a, there were a dozen countries that opened investigations into insider trading right after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, there was a lot of evidence for financial crimes, and that included what are called put options on the affected companies or bets that the, that the stock of certain companies would go down, like the airline uh, companies and such. And um, treasury bond trades, and there were credit card transactions made at the World Trade Center in massive amounts just before it was destroyed. The people in charge of the investigations into this insider trading let the suspects off the hook. So just to be clear, the Securities Exchange Commission named specific people as suspects in 9-11 insider trading, handed that information off to the FBI and the 9-11 Commission, and the FBI and the 9-11 Commission didn't even interview those suspects. One of those people was someone we've talked about before, Work Walker, Work Dexter Walker, who headed the security company for the World Trade Center complex, was specifically named, along with his wife, as a suspect in 9-11 insider trading by the Securities Exchange Commission, and he and his wife were not even interviewed. The government simply concluded that, yes, it looked like insider trading occurred, but since it was not done by people who could conceivably be linked to al-Qaeda, it couldn't have been insider trading, which is just amazing that they got away with that. And frankly, the other countries, after seeing the United States approach to it, ended up ultimately dropping their investigations too. And with regard to your seventh observation about 9-11, you list suspicious benefits for a powerful few. Yeah, after 9-11, I think we all know that the defense industry was given a huge increase in funding and profit as the wars proceeded afterward. But also um, companies that were in the oil industry, like Halliburton, made a a killing after 9-11. Oil and gas companies benefited tremendously from the takeover of the countries uh, involved in the 9-11 wars, like Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, really, the 9-11 narrative ended up being very profitable for some people. Your eighth observation about 9-11 is intel agency control of information. So were the intelligence agencies controlling the information on the events of 9-11? Yes, absolutely. After 9-11, all the evidence uh, related to the attacks was controlled by the FBI and the CIA. The FBI controlled the crime scenes. They controlled the witnesses. They controlled, the CIA controlled the evidence against the suspects' alleged torture testimonies on which the 9-11 commission report was based. All this evidence was controlled, in some cases destroyed, by the FBI and the CIA. And really, if you look at the official account of 9-11 carefully, you see that really all the evidence arose from these agencies. And the report itself is basically just a plea to citizens to just trust the FBI and trust the CIA 
because, of course, they must have our best interests at heart. But yeah, the intelligence agencies were controlling all information and all evidence after 9-11. And with regard to your ninth observation about 9-11, you cite an elusive, all-powerful enemy. For instance, Al-Qaeda. Yeah, Al-Qaeda was clearly an all-powerful enemy, if you believe the official account. They showed up everywhere. They had the power to do things that you wouldn't imagine people having the power to do, just show up anywhere in the world and bring unsuspecting people over to their side. Any people could turn into Al-Qaeda operatives, if you believe the official account of, of terrorism over the years. They were always terrorizing us in ways, though, that led to the seizure and transport of natural resources. So if you look at the map of where Al-Qaeda and its associated terrorist groups were located, they were all around the areas where production of critical oil and gas resources and other resources were occurring. And the transport lines were all outlined by where these groups were committing their terrorist attacks. But if you believe the news, it's unbelievable to some extent. They were they were generating videos after they'd, they'd capture people and they'd put them just as if they were American um, law enforcement agencies, exactly as if they were. They would put their captives in these orange jumpsuits. And so we'd see these videos with these suspicious-looking terrorists uh, surrounded by these poor people in orange jumpsuits. So they'd make these videos. They had their own websites. They had apparently vast financial networks, very capable communication systems. And really, for whatever reason, Al-Qaeda just could not be stopped. With regard to your 10th observation, you cite abuse of science, pseudoscience. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is this is really what brought me into the investigation of 9-11. You know, I worked for Underwriters Laboratories. My company was involved in helping the National Institute of Standards and Technology complete the official report. And and I was watching it, of course, very closely. And and, uh, I saw the contradictions between what tests were performed and the conclusions that were drawn. And if you look at the official investigations into the World Trade Center closely, you see that Uh, pseudoscience is really the best way to describe it. And pseudoscience has been described in detail by um, academic researchers who've looked into certain uh, abuses of science for political purposes. And this investigation reflects that pseudoscience approach perfectly. There were very few experiments that were done. The results of the experiments that were done were ignored or contradicted in the conclusions. There was no peer review input from concerned independent scientists was ignored. Uh, The findings can't be replicated or falsified, which is a basic requirement of science, because NIST withheld their data and would not share it. And the the one hypothesis that was supported by most of the evidence, that is the demolition of the World Trade Center buildings, was ignored throughout the investigation. So really, science was abused very badly in the official investigations into 9-11. Your 11th observation is censorship of dissent. Now, how did we see that happening after 9-11? Well, um, those of us who were speaking out about 9-11 and the inconsistencies in the official accounts and the questions about what wasn't covered, 
were censored. I can tell you I was interviewed by the New York Times and, and Reuters and mainstream news outlets in the early years, and it was so obvious that they were not going to um, give us a fair chance to produce our questions publicly. For example, the New York Times asked me a number of questions for one of their stories. They left out almost everything that I responded with in favor of some folks who uh, were supporting the official account, but clearly didn't know enough about demolition themselves to even understand the concepts. So censorship proceeded from there to the fact that uh, some of us were told by representatives of CNN, for example, that when asked why they wouldn't show the, the destruction of World Trade Center 7 on the, on the news, they would say, well, we have a new policy that we're not allowed to show building collapses on TV, which was just ridiculous. You know, and since then, of course, YouTube has taken down all of what they call 9-11 conspiracy videos, many of those. Uh, Google censors everything related to 9-11 questioning. My own blog, Dig Within, can't even be found most of the time. Even when you type in the exact title of my articles, they won't come up on Google. So it's been a concerted effort to censor any dissent into 9-11 and any questioning of the official account. Can we go back over these 11 observations and take a look at the pandemic and not 9-11 and see if they apply. This is what you were doing in your presentation, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I was doing exactly that. The point of the, of the presentation was to apply these 11 observations about 9-11 in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and the, the response to the COVID-19 situation to see if there's any anything similar. And, uh, you know, the first one was the incessant fear-based media coverage. And um, if anybody been aware of been following the news at all this year, they certainly know that the media has been incessantly covering COVID-19 and that has been all uh, really about fear. It's been about death rates and it's been about projected death rates. And over time, we found that even the CDC's own data was showing that the the infection fatality rate of COVID was was comparable to a bad flu. And even now, I think it's even lower than that. It's more of a an average flu. Nonetheless, I think we were all concerned about it and we wanted to see what, what we could do to, uh, to limit it. So initially, the death rate scared people, but after a while, it stopped scaring people. And then the, the news reports were then not about deaths because there just simply weren't that many deaths for a period of time, they were reporting what's called cases. So in this case, cases means somebody has been tested for uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 and they have tested positive and now they're a case. Most of those are called asymptomatic cases, which means they're perfectly healthy people showing no symptoms of, the, of disease, but yet they tested positive for that virus and now their cases. And so the news was ramping up constantly every day. The number of cases everywhere was being reported. And so it was very reminiscent of 9-11, this fear-based approach. Uh, secondly, you talked about no investigation. Now, how does that apply to the pandemic? 
Well, there are there were a couple of things that occurred that normal situation, I think, uh, people would be interested in investigating right away. One of those had to do with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was somehow named as the, the leader of the national response in the United States. And it had been really a couple of months into his leadership, becoming almost a celebrity for leading the response to COVID, that it was revealed that he had actually funded research at the Chinese laboratory in Wuhan, where some people believe the virus actually originated. And the kind of research he funded was called gain-of-function research. And this wasn't investigated. And not only was it not investigated, but when Dr. Fauci was asked about it, he just simply started to talk about conspiracy theories. Oh, these are conspiracy theories. Instead of addressing the questions directly, and this is much like 9-11, when people were questioned about 9-11 foreknowledge, uh, like President George W. Bush, they responded by saying something about conspiracy theories rather than addressing the question. But you know, gain-of-function research means weaponization of viruses. It means making them more deadly, more capable of infecting people. And Fauci had been involved, along with the Pentagon, in funding these kinds of labs around the world to manipulate the same kind of viruses that SARS-CoV-2 uh, supposedly is. So other than that, uh, there has also been revealed that there have been a lot of patents, a lot of patents applied for and a lot of patents granted on coronaviruses. And those patent applications have increased dramatically in the last couple of years. And this should also be something that people are interested in investigating. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Similarities of 9-11 and the Pandemic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And at the point that the response kills far more people than the event itself... Yeah, this one, this one was one of the first things that I saw right away when I began uh, looking into COVID-19. The first article I wrote had to do with what was clear to me that the response to COVID-19, all the lockdowns, for example, were going to kill a lot more people than the virus would ever kill. And that definitely has been the case. You know, just from the lack of health care, the lack of cancer diagnosis, the lack of... Uh, treatment of people who fall ill with tuberculosis, for example. But more importantly, the the millions and estimated to be 135 to 250 million people who are expected to be pushed into the brink of starvation around the world due to the lockdowns and the inability to work. These are huge numbers of people being affected. I mean, UNICEF predicted that that 1.2 million children would die in just this year, just this year, 1.2 million children would die this year. So all the people who were talking about how they care so much about children and they don't need to go to school, when in fact children in the United States simply aren't dying, those people are not concerned at all about the over 1 million children who UNICEF and others are predicting to die this year from starvation and, uh, and poverty. So um, deaths of despair are expected to be comparable to the number of deaths from the virus itself. Suicides and overdoses are what I mean. Just incredible numbers of people dying and their lives being destroyed by the 
what can only be seen as a reckless response to COVID-19 if you take these things into account. Your fourth observation is of false official accounts. Could you describe some of these false official accounts? Yeah, one of the biggest uh, ones, of course, uh, probably the most outrageous one, was was the uh, predictions made by the Imperial College of London and their leader, Neil Ferguson. It was these predictions that really the U.S. and and Britain, for sure, based their entire policy on. So these predictions were that many millions of people would die. In the United States, the prediction said in the United States, 2.2 million people would die. Worldwide, the estimate was about 50 million people. Um, These were not seen. These these predictions did not come true. Um, At this point, um, even if we accept all of the deaths attributed to COVID uh, in the United States, only about a tenth of those actually occurred. And of course, you'd have to accept all of the attribution of death, as we'll talk about maybe later. But this Imperial College um, produced this terribly uh, overstated, alarmist prediction of death. And that's what the lockdowns were based on. And one thing people should note is that the Imperial College receives tens of millions of dollars in grants from vaccine-related foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So much like the account for the World Trade Center, Neil Ferguson and the Imperial College based their predictions on a computer model. And then when asked, uh, when people asked to see the model, they say, no, you can't see this model, much like NIST claimed it would not release its computer model. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of false official accounts as well. And then your fifth observation notes that the event was preceded by exercises mimicking the very events. What have you discovered about that? Well, this is something that a lot of people have noted, and I've just tried to uh, highlight in my presentation, but most definitely the coronavirus pandemic was uh, mimicked Uh, very closely by a couple of uh, exercises that occurred just before the uh, coronavirus appeared. The most recent one was in October of 2019, again funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, this was called Event 201. So Event 201 simulated an almost identical crisis as the one that happened just just afterward. It was about a new coronavirus. And... uh, During the exercise, public policy decision-making was taken over by corporate leaders, including pharmaceutical companies. So non-representative leaders were now, according to the exercise, taking over the response in collaboration with intelligence agencies like the CIA. And this exercise also discussed how to handle conspiracy theories and how to censor information on social media and otherwise. And believe it or not, how to use what are called fact checkers. We see a lot of these fact checkers now to counter anything that might contradict the official narrative. So Event 201 was not the only one of these types of exercises. It was just the latest in a string, kind of a a continuum of these. There was one right before that called Crimson Contagion, also in 2019. And Crimson Contagion um, practiced 
what ended up occurring with governors of the states taking uh, a role, kind of making laws on their own as these little dictators. You know, that's what crimson contagion practice that the, the governors, because it was a health uh, emergency in their states, would suddenly take over uh, without legislative involvement. They would just start making laws um, and making directives. And so, you know, going back before that, there were several others. Very recently, uh, in a presidential debate, Joe Biden talked about how we're going to have a dark winter, which was uh, was very uh, uh, chilling, actually, because one of the first of these um, pandemic exercises was called dark winter. It happened back in 2001. But the same people in, in groups were involved in Dark Winter and several others in Crimson Contagion and Vent 201, kind of practicing over a period of, of almost 20 years for exactly what's happening here and ultimately practicing exactly what's happening with the COVID crisis. And then with regard to insider trading, which establishes foreknowledge, now how could that apply to the pandemic? Well, um, Actually, insider trading did occur with the pandemic. So in particular, four U.S. senators who were all um, members of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, including their leader, Richard Burr, were found to have um, been briefed on the coronavirus uh, situation in January and immediately afterward sold millions of dollars in stock. Uh, all four of these senators did. And... Um, and they were protected then from the, the stock market crash that occurred not long afterward. They, they knew something was coming. They, they made financial decisions based on what they found out about the coronavirus. And they were investigated for it. Now, Richard Burr is still being investigated for it. He dumped almost $2 million in stock after reassuring the public about the coronavirus preparedness. So he got briefed on it in the Senate Intelligence Committee. He dumped $2 million worth of stock immediately. And then he also went on to tell the rest of us that there was no no worries about coronavirus. So that's a suspicious uh, series of events that suggests that these senators knew something was going to occur, that something was going to happen, despite telling us that they didn't think anything was to be worried about. The only difference is Three of those senators were investigated and and are no longer being investigated, Uh, whereas with 9-11, there just was no real investigation at all. But there was insider trading in both cases. And who were the three senators that are no longer being investigated? Well, there's uh, Kelly Loeffler, who uh, is on the Senate Health Committee as well, and she She's uh, married to the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, so she was one of the senators. There's James Inhofe from Oklahoma and uh, Diane Feinstein from California. Those were the four, Burr, Loeffler, Inhofe, and Feinstein. Now, what about the observation of suspicious benefits for a powerful few? Does that apply to the pandemic? Well, yeah, I think more and more people are starting to realize that uh, billionaires uh, have made a killing from the coronavirus pandemic. So billionaires, as of my presentation, billionaires had grown richer 
by about $1 trillion. So a huge increase in wealth. Companies like Amazon have have had huge increases in profitability. Uh, Walmart, for example, Amazon, any of those large corporations that um, that really you can do business with online or were not really affected by the lockdown rules. Vaccine manufacturers uh, have appeared to be uh, profiting decently in terms of uh, sales projections and profits. Moderna is, a, is an example, um, AstraZeneca. Yeah, I talked about these 25 corporate nations in this presentation about the fact that people often don't realize when they take a look at what they're seeing that decisions are not really made by countries as much anymore. Nations are not as much important entities as corporations are now. There are 25 corporations that are greater than nations, more powerful, more wealthy, and they include uh, Amazon and Walmart, and they include Google and Apple and uh, Microsoft, Bill Gates' old company, and Facebook and Twitter, believe it or not. Uh, it seems like these uh, greater-than-nation corporations seem to be profiting from whatever crisis is coming along, whether it be 9-11 or terrorism in general or the coronavirus pandemic. They're, they're making a killing, and while a lot of people are really being affected financially in very negative ways. And your observation, Intel Agency Control of Information. Now, have you found that the intelligence agencies are controlling the information that goes to the public with regard to the coronavirus? Yeah, I noticed really in, in early March that something happened in terms of the narrative being delivered by the news. And one thing I noticed right away in uh, early March... Uh, was that the, the White House, uh, the U.S. government, told the health officials, uh, CDC and the HHS, to classify all coronavirus deliberations. So um, the CDC and its parent agency, HHS, were told that the communications about coronavirus were now going to be controlled by the National Security Council. That was a big flag for me. Uh, one of the things that really got me interested in COVID-19, what's happening here? Because really, we were told uh, up until that point not to worry about coronavirus, not to wear masks. Masks would not be effective. You know, don't worry about coronavirus. Dr. Fauci and others, the same thing. It's not a problem. But somehow at the beginning of March, uh, a narrative switch was thrown. And the National Security Council took over. And since then, it's been the constant fear being driven. It's the same sort of thing happening in England. Uh, intelligence agencies are controlling all the data and directing the overall uh, response. So um, I talked about uh, uh, CIA-funded companies who've been hired to manage all the COVID data, like Peter Thiel's Palantir Corporation. So it does definitely look like intelligence agencies are running the show with regard to the management of the data and the control of the information. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Similarities of 9-11 and the Pandemic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then your ninth observation is of an elusive, all-powerful 
enemy. How does that apply to the pandemic? Well, I saw that the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the messaging that we're getting about it was very unusual. And it's it reminded me of Al-Qaeda and being an elusive, all-powerful enemy, uh, you know, unpredictable as well. And we've been told so many things about SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 that are so contradictory to the history that we've been through with viruses. Um, so I gave examples of uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, is not like a lot of uh, other viruses where somebody has to actually be sick and actually sneezing and coughing to spread the disease. They don't have to be sick at all. Asymptomatic people can spread the disease and they can be what, what are called super spreaders, having no symptoms of, of a disease at all. Um, we've been told that you can get reinfected and really that was that was a misstatement uh, and, and ultimately found out to be really a matter of faulty testing. We're told that these cheap effective drugs that are chloroquine derivatives, like hydroxychloroquine, which worked for the last coronaviruses, has always worked for, for coronaviruses, suddenly won't work for this new one, despite the fact that there's a lot of scientific research suggesting that it, it is actually very effective against this disease. There's 53 published studies that show that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are effective for diseases and viruses just exactly like this. And really one thing, you know, there's a lot of um, history with coronaviruses. There's four common coronaviruses, and then there's been three that they're kind of non-common, COVID-19 being caused by the last one. But the four common coronaviruses cause things like the cold, the common cold. So, and these coronaviruses are very uh, seasonal and they're very predictable in their behavior. But suddenly SARS-CoV-2, we're told, is not predictable in any way. It might go on forever. You can get reinfected and so on. And one of the most uh, um, really telling features that apparently has to do with this virus, uh, or perhaps not, but it's just, it's just contradictory. It makes no sense that this virus that was so all-powerful and could so easily infect people won't infect people when you're protesting for Black Lives Matter. But believe it or not, that reversed when people started protesting against the lockdowns. So around the world, people began protesting against the lockdowns, and the health agencies and the government said, you can't do that. You know, you're going to spread COVID-19. But None of this makes any sense. It's just almost as if SARS-CoV-2 is so unpredictable that it's so uh, all-powerful that it does just whatever uh, kind of benefits the government story. That leads us to your 10th observation, the abuse of science or pseudoscience. How does that fit in? Well, I gave several examples of, of the abuse of science with regard to COVID-19. And... Uh, one of them relates to the second article I wrote about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, this has to do with what's called false positives in testing. It's something I know actually a good deal about, and so I looked into it. And um, seeing all these reports of, of false positives being reported around the country, around the world. In China, they produced a peer-reviewed paper in a journal of epidemiology that said their false positive rate was 50%. So 50% of the tests for infection in China were 
false. They were not they were not true infections of SARS-CoV-2. But then you started we started seeing these same kinds of false positive stories around the country and around the world. You may remember the president of Tanzania spoke out about the fact that he had samples tested for goats and for fruits, and they came back as positive tests for coronavirus. Human coronavirus being tested and found positive in fruit and in goats. Uh, the Chinese said that they had frozen chicken wings that were being tested and found to be positive for the virus. The South Koreans had a study that that showed that that reinfection suggestion was false because it was all based on false positive results. But we've seen a lot of this. We've seen people testing positive and negative on the same day. We've seen them test huge numbers of people test positive, even though they're not even exposed. So there was there was a ship that was sent out, a merchant marine ship that was sent out on the sea for seven weeks. Everybody on the ship tested negative. They were alone, entirely alone on the ship for seven weeks. They came back and a bunch of people tested positive. So it just doesn't make any sense. So I started looking into these false positives. I looked specifically at the CDC test kit and I learned that the, it's a genetic kit, a genetic test. So it's based on matching the sample RNA. If there's any RNA from the virus itself, it will match up to reagents used in the kit, and the reagents are called N1, N2, and N3. They're also called primers. So if these primers are specific to SARS-CoV-2, they, they will find that material, that RNA uh, genetic sequence in the sample, and they'll say that's a positive test. But when the CDC put out their test kit, the state labs were starting to complain they were getting a lot of false positives. And the CDC for a couple of weeks didn't respond at all as if they didn't know what to say. Uh, what they did ultimately do is they took one of the reagents or primers called N3. So there's N2, N3, and N1 primers, all focused on one gene of the virus. And they took N3 and threw it out. They said, don't use N3 anymore. That's the problem. Really surprisingly, they also said, you no longer need to test, to confirm positive test results. So here we got, we've got a test that's built on one gene of the virus and three markers. One of the markers is thrown out and, and suddenly we're saying we don't even have to confirm positive test results. So now um, this looks like a real problem. And I went into to a database the government has called BLAST and I took the sequences from the CDC test kit and I tried to match them up to uh, search throughout the, the genetic database. And I found that these markers are not specific. They're not specific to any given coronavirus. They're, they're, they're common to coronaviruses, yes, but the problem is the common cold is a coronavirus. As many people have pointed out, this test doesn't really test for an active virus. It just tests for a small sequence of a virus that could have been just a remnant of something you had a year ago. That's, that's the big problem here. On top of that, I, I, I saw something that a doctor from uh, the Mount Sinai School of Medicine had posted on Twitter, and, and he had done some testing, a different type of test of these CDC primers with some uh, what he called mock samples, so samples of human cells that he knew were not infected with SARS-CoV-2, and he tested them, and a lot of them came back positive. And 
he posted on Twitter that this shows that the CDC test kit produces false positives. Uninfected cells are responding as if they were infected by SARS-CoV-2. So that was the first abuse of science that I noted. And then, of course, with regard to your 11th observation, the censorship of dissent. Do we find that happening presently? Yes, absolutely. You know, doctors have been speaking out. Uh, I think many of us have seen that. Dr. Newt Witkowski from Rockefeller University was an example. In uh, Bakersfield, uh, and I don't remember their exact name, a pair of doctors, Dr. Scott Jensen in Minnesota, Doctors around the country have been speaking out publicly about the irrational response to COVID-19. And also, like Dr. Scott Jensen, they've been talking about the manipulation of death certificates. So uh, Dr. Jensen pointed out that he had never been told, he'd never been told he had to put specific uh, cause of death on a death certificate. But now the World Health Organization and the CDC have a new policy where Uh, If a patient is tested and they test positive with the high rate of false positives included uh, for SARS-CoV-2, then then COVID-19, no matter what they actually died from, has to be listed on their death certificate as a cause of death. More surprisingly, as Dr. Jensen pointed out, even if it's just assumed that they have had COVID-19, they're to put COVID-19 on the death certificate. So there's a couple of problems with this. One problem, as admitted by Robert Redfield of the CDC, the leader of the CDC, is that hospitals are financially incentivized to list COVID-19 as a diagnosis. They get a huge increase in money from the government if they're treating COVID-19 patients. So now you've got people going to the hospital after the lockdowns. They're all being tested as they come in. They're being tested with a test that generates a lot of false positives. And if they test positive, they're listed as a COVID case. And then if they die, they're listed as a COVID death. And all of this is just outrageous for normal uh, medical professionals. They've been speaking out about it and they've been censored. So they're censored on YouTube. They're censored on Google. They're censored on Twitter and Facebook. These alleged fact checkers will come in and say, in so many words, these people are not uh, towing the official line on COVID. And so we're calling it false information just for that reason. Where do you see this whole thing headed? I think that this whole thing is is headed toward a very large increase, another quantum step in government control over the population. So I gave all the observations for 9-11 and all the similar observations for COVID-19. And I showed how they were very, very common uh, sorts of observations. And then um, I ultimately did come up with a hypothesis. And my hypothesis was that the coronavirus scare, as I call it, is a psychological operation. And it's intended to facilitate a new level of population control for the benefit of the powerful few, kind of the the global elite, uh, the the very rich people of the world. But what's important is that people need to start questioning any kind of story that comes from the government about them protecting us from some new enemy. It's the same sort of story. It was uh, terrorists in Al-Qaeda before 9-11. 
now it's this virus and suddenly the government's going to step in and they're going to protect us and they're going to tell us everything we need to do. And they're also going to ramp up um, surveillance, which they obviously have, uh, ramp up unwarranted mass surveillance that came in through the NSA after 9-11. And now Google and Apple and, and your own phone is now going to track you everywhere you go. So it's really about population control. And I think that that's where all, all the evidence points at this time. Kevin Ryan, thank you. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for keeping up the good work and keep getting the message out. Speaking with Kevin Ryan, today's show has been Similarities of 9-11 and the Pandemic. Kevin Ryan earned a B.S. in chemistry from Indiana University and has worked as a chemistry laboratory manager for many years. He is the former site manager for environmental health laboratories in South Bend, Indiana, a division of Underwriters Laboratories. He is the editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies that publishes peer-reviewed research. Visit journalof911studies.com. Visit his blog at digwithin.net. That includes three articles on today's subject. That's digwithin.net. His book, Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects, can be found at another19.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself.